want to talk a little bit about anatta as uh, as a view and the importance of that and not to be afraid of thinking about that view because we have to have some confidence and I think it's actually useful to understand it on a conceptual level and then use it in the same way that we currently understand this view of self, me here in some kind of permanent fashion, we understand that on a conceptual level and we use that all the time in life. We're using that view all the time. And uh, <clears throat> the, the work of that view is making things make sense with that view, which is what, you know, it's sort of our psychological work. We're making our interactions, experiences in the world make sense with that permanent sense of self, me, who's having this experience, who's living this life, who's the agent and person who receives, you know, the fruit of my action and all these things. This is how I put this up on the website. Um, I put up a lot of new resources there. There's more than maybe anyone is going to go through. So just sort of pick your way through. See what looks interesting. Snoop around. Don't make, don't get tight about all the different articles and suttas. And I even put up, I'll talk about later a video. Um, this is the Buddha. And the, and his attendant, Ananda, talking. Venerable Sir, Ananda says to the Buddha, could a practitioner obtain such a state of concentration that one would have no eye-making, mind-making, and underlying, underlying tendency to conceit in regard to this conscious body? One would have no eye-making, mind-making, and underlying tendency to conceit in regard to all external objects, and one would enter and dwell in that liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, through which there is no more eye-making, mind-making, and underlying tendency to conceit for one who's, who enters and dwells in it. He could, Ananda, one could, Ananda, the Buddha responds. But how, Venerable Sir, could one obtain such a state of concentration? Here's what the Buddha says. Here, Ananda, a practitioner thinks thus. Here, Ananda, a practitioner thinks thus. Right? So the Buddha said, you know, contemplate or reflect in this way. This is peaceful. This is sublime. So it's interesting. The Buddha is starting out by, like, notice how beautiful, how sublime it is that the stilling of all he doesn't say neurotic activities, he just says the stilling of all activities, that it might make be easier to understand as the stilling of all neurotic activities, the relinquishing of all acquisitions, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. In this way, Ananda, a practitioner, could obtain such a state of concentration that one would have no eye-making, mind-making, and underlying tendency to conceit in regard to this conscious body, to external things, external objects, 
And one would dwell in that liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, through which there is no more eye-making, mind-making, and underlying tendency to conceit for one who enters and dwells in it. And it was with reference to this, and the Buddha just has a closing verse, having comprehended the highs and lows in the world, one is not perturbed by anything in the world, peaceful, fumeless, untroubled, wishless, one has, I say, crossed over birth and old age. Not because that body becomes immortal, like we hear about in our fairy tales and things like that, but one crosses or goes beyond birth and death because there isn't anything in the mind identified taking personally the ordinary processes of birth and death. It's like death is a problem for a mind that is identified with that physical process, right? What is death to the mind not identified with the physical process? And we don't have to wait to death. We can just experience that like we did tonight, you know, for many minutes, we were contemplating the body. It's a physical process like death. But we were contemplating it not as self, but as sensation, being known. Two things. An object that's being known. Not that you can really tease the two apart, but that's the dynamic. It's just something being known. Not add anything more to it. And if the mind does add anything more to it, then quite nimbly... That's a thought being known. And if that thought comes charged with an emotion, it's me. That, that's, that feeling, that emotion is just that sensation or whatever being known. Now, the view of, you know, the view of anatta, really, it isn't so much that we think that view, it's this it's really a more of an abandoning of what the mind habitually adds to the moment, regurgitates, reconceptualizes. And so the activity of this is being known, you know, whether you use those words in your mind or your mind is just noticing things in that simple, direct way, it's a preventative practice or it's a preventative activity because if we're filling up this moment, the mind, filling up the mind, sort of its capacity to do with that doing, right? It's knowing that this is being known, this is being known. Then it's not so easy for the mind to add, to uh, bring in this overlay. This is happening to me and I like it, or this is happening to me and I don't like it. from an article by Tani Sarabhiku, The Essence of Dhamma, that was printed in the Insight, um, what do they call it now? It used to be the Insight Magazine or Journal, and now it's just online. Maybe they still call it the Insight Magazine, put out by the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. I think this summer, it's pretty recent. They interviewed Ajahn Tani Saro and then uh, had this article there. He regularly teaches there at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. One of the most striking features of the Buddhist teachings 
is the way he calls into question the substantiality of things, and in particular, things that people at large regard as having substance. The primary example is our sense of self. Right? So the sense of self has this sense of substance, mostly for us. Most people have a sense that there is, that there is something substantial inside them that constitutes their true self. But this sense, the Buddha shows, is nothing more than a fabrication or thought. You know, it's a construction of the mind. And that construction is really an activity of mind. Because even, even the word construction makes it more than what it is. It's something, it's, it is a, uh, it's an appearance that arises when there's this mental activity. This, what, uh, Tani Sarobiku is calling construction, or fabrication rather. It's nothing more than a fabrication. It's the result of clinging to physical objects such as the body, or the mental activities, feelings, perceptions, thought fabrications, and consciousness, none of which have any substance or essence. And then he goes on to quote a famous discourse where the Buddha likens physical phenomena to the foam that you see sometimes on the, in the surf on a lake that has too much phosphorus in it, or whatever, that makes that foam. It like, looks substantial until you touch it and there's really nothing there. Or bubbles caused by rain falling on water. He equates feelings to that, to bubbles. Or perceptions. And we know that, like, uh, for example, we can be feeling really badly about something and that bad feeling, whatever it is, can be really substantial until we get new information and then we don't feel badly about it anymore. Where did that go? Or we could be feeling really good about something, and then we look a little bit more closely, and it's not appealing at all, and that real good feeling, that excitement, it just evaporates, like a bubble pops. So when we're in feeling and identified with it, it feels quite substantial. And we tend not to notice how quickly feeling, a positive or a negative feeling, can go away and become something else. It's very ephemeral. The Buddha likens perceptions to a mirage. It's like uh, we look out into the room and we see, oh yeah, common ground on Monday night, Buddha studies class. But that idea is a mirage. It kind of, this isn't actually the same as that thought. I'm at common ground, it's Monday night, this is Buddha studies class. Those thoughts are not what this is. So our concepts, the Buddha likens to a mirage. (coughs) Perceptions to a mirage. Thought fabrications to the trunk of a banana tree. And if you've seen banana trees, they're quite substantial actually because bananas have quite a bit of weight. But at the end of the season, that tree that held quite a bit of weight, there's really nothing there. It's not like a trunk of a normal tree that exists season by year after year. I believe it completely falls apart and regrows the the following year. Or maybe even twice a year. I don't know how many times that happens per year. Devoid of heartwood. And consciousness, 
the Buddha likens to a magic show. He notes, now I'm continuing reading, he notes that all of these things which are called aggregates are empty, void, and without substance or essence. The purpose of this sort of contemplation is to induce a sense of dis- disenchantment and dispassion for these things, and by extens- extension, for any sense of self built around them, so that the mind can let go of them and find release. Now we have to be careful. To, it's easy to think that the Buddha is somehow arguing for that in some metaphysical way there isn't anything here. So that when he says it's insubstantial, he's really talking about our subjective experience. He's not talking, he's not even in the realm of talking about the underlying nature, the objective nature of reality. Because that's not the question the Buddha is addressing. And the Buddha was very clear about this. He's addressing the question of suffering and the end of suffering. This subjective experience of stress and the release of that stress. And he's talking about our subjective experience as being void or empty of self. Empty of a construction that seems, that has the appearance of being substantial in terms of self. That is void, that's empty. That cannot be found when one looks for it with a balanced mind. We don't actually find that substance there, that self there. There's the appearance from a, you know, a diluted or a superficial or not careful way. It, there is this appearance, clearly, there is this appearance of that substance. So it's important that we become interested enough in this view, this idea, you know, that the sense, the experience of self is a fabrication arising due to um, the superficiality or the instability of the attention. The mind's just not paying attention. And one of the similes that's used, many of you have heard this before, is this uh, example of somebody when it's, you know, dusk or dawn, not so light, not completely light, walking in the woods on a path, and they see something on the path that looks wiggly like a snake. And they look and they look, and it's a snake. And, of course, they back off, go around the other way assuming that you're in a place with poisonous snakes. And uh, sure enough, the next day, the snake is there again. And this is just the place where that snake seems to hang out, because it seems to be there every time I come down this path. So I don't go down that path anymore. And, you know, it's like, it is for us. We start telling other people, and before you know, the whole village knows that there's a big snake on the path. You can find it there almost every time. So nobody uses that path, they build another path, a different place where there isn't a snake, until one day, you should probably get, even if you haven't heard this before, you get where we're going, which is, it's not a snake, it's a rope, or, you know, a vine or something, that looks like a snake. Once you see that, 
then it's very clear that all along the mind was fabricating, constructing the idea that that snake, and it had that fabrication had all kinds of implications for how we lived our life, like not using that path, being tight whenever we were in the area, because there's a snake there. But once we see that it's just the vine, then the mind knows it was never a snake. And this is a simile for this um, construction or fabrication of self that has that appearance. And so the question is, well, what supports going beyond the fabrication or seeing beyond, seeing through it? Well, we have to look. We have to be curious enough. We can't believe the perceptual patterns or habits of our mind because they're going to keep recreating things according to the past. That's what memory or perception does. Where does perception, like how do we know this is common ground? We only know this is common ground because our past experience, whatever we constructed in the past, however we defined this in the past, it intervenes right now. It tells us, yeah, this is common ground. It's got to be Monday night. Recognize some of these faces. So, to break through the fabrication, to go beyond it, we have to practice being free of that perceptual, conceptual, those mechanisms of the mind. So we call that being mindful, or this simple, bare attention to sensation, to hearing, to seeing, thoughts as thoughts. Like I said, it's an object being known. Any perception, any memory, any thought is a thought being known. We don't let it be more than that. That's the discipline. So if you really want to check out, you know, what so many thousands of people have said through history that there is this profound release of the heart that allows for tremendous wisdom and compassion to arise. And it really has to do with going beyond the false notions that the mind creates then we have to take up some discipline because clearly just doing what we've been doing doesn't necessarily or often change how we perceive things and how we fab- what we fabricate. So we have to take a systematic, disciplined approach to shift the view. Because views have a way of self-replicating, repeating themselves. You know, whatever our view is, We try very hard to make things fit that view, and it's only when, you know, our experience is so obviously not in alignment with that view do we eventually, after a lot of resistance, change our view. It isn't easy to change our view. Like uh, if you had a bad experience with a dog when you were a kid, or... You know, all the different phobias people have, prejudices people have, it's not easy to change those things. Because we, we deeply, the mind, the habit is to deeply trust perception, deeply trust how we conceptualize experience. And of course, to a large degree, it's been functional. It's, served us reasonably well on a relative level 
how we conceptualize things. And it feels, we feel so naked and uh, vulnerable when we practice mindfulness in this systematic way because we're releasing, letting go of the defense that, that our concepts give us. It's this great irony. On the one hand, there's this threshold that can at times feel like death, like it's so scary. But on the other hand, it's liberating to just be in cessation. It's so peaceful to be in the world of things as they are, with the mind, the thinking mind, conceptualizing mind, whether, no matter how active or un- inactive it is, it's not distorting, it's not disturbing this more simple, direct experiencing. This is from Joseph Goldstein's book, maybe some of you have read One Dharma. The concept of the body, which we usually hold and cherish, is often our first and most immediate response to the question, who am I? We wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, see the reflection of the body, and think, yes, that's me. When we look deeper, though, we see that the body is not something in itself that we can call me or mine. And then he goes on to tell a story of a friend of his who had a little fibroid tumor removed. And I guess they do this more often these days. But anyway, they filmed it um, and gave him a CD or videotape of it, of that operation. And uh, his friend wasn't interested in looking at it, but Joseph was fascinated by it. And uh, this is the thing about the body's a really good example um, because it's it's very much, it feels very much like it belongs to us or it is us, it is me. When my wife teaches uh, a class at McAllister, Experiential Anatomy, and she's uh, assigned her students some video videos that I put one up on our website, a person named Gil Headley, and uh, he's quite good and in this video, and it's just the beginning one where he removes the skin of a, of a corpse, of an embalmed body. But just that, this is what I mean by challenging our conceptualizing, fabrica- fabricating tendencies. Because we're, the fabrication we have about this body being mine really depends on it being wrapped nicely in skin. And then when we look at a body in a more simple, direct way, and especially as we open it up, this sense of it being me or you, it really falls apart. It's not so easy to hold. That doesn't make so much sense to think of it as being mine or I'm there in that or something like this. It's a wonderful... uh, talk from uh, Bhikkhuni, one of the nuns from the time of the Buddha, Vajira, it was her name. Bhikkhuni Vajira, after her alms round, went to blind men's grove 
had sat down at a foot of the tree for a day's abiding. Then Mara, the evil one, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in the Bhikkhuni Vajira. So Mara, if you don't know, is just the personification of, you know, the negative tendencies of our mind. Desiring to make her fall away from concentration, from the steadiness of her mindfulness. So Mara approached her and addressed her in verse. By whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of the being? Where has the being arisen? Where does the being cease? Right? So the mind starts to think you're there. And the mind starts to have questions. Who am I? And you'll, maybe you hear in these questions that are rising in this practitioner's mind, there's a big assumption, right? There's assumption that there is somebody who's been created. Then Vajira, understanding Mara was speaking, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in her, replied in verse, Why now do you assume a being? Mara, is that your speculative view? So in the way the Buddha taught, speculative view is a defilement. It's like entertaining, our, our mind entertains itself. The thinking mind entertains itself with speculative views. We like this. Like, why do we like to listen to politics? Or why do we, you know, when we're reading the news, do we look for disagreements, conflicts? We like conflicts because we like this, uh, the drama of like this view, that view, sides, good and bad, who's right, who's wrong. Why now do you assume a being, Mara? Is that your speculative view? This is a a heap of sheer formations, right? It's a collection of formations. There is no being here. No being is found. Just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used, so when the aggregates exist, there is this convention, a being. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing the Bhakuni Vajira knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. I like this part at the end, especially this view of an awakened person. Clearly she was either fully awake or well along the way. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. So here's a, you know, just, this is a speculative view, but maybe a wholesome one. It's like imagining an awake person, imagining no greed, anger, delusion operating in the mind, So even the thought of things coming and going. And maybe you can, you can remember experiences like this in your life where the mind was relatively free, unhindered by what was happening, what was going on. And just even the notion that things are coming and going, that the day is passing, those thoughts tend not to arise. 
There is the flowing of time, of course, from this objective or this subjective point of view, this relative point of view, I should say. But from the point of view of a mind not grasping, clinging, or fabricating, the idea of time coming and going, or hours passing, or that's just not relevant. It doesn't mean that if somebody asked you what time it was, you know, that being wouldn't, you know, would forget to, oh, I've got a watch, or I can look at my cell phone. I mean, it, it's not that the person becomes stupid. But the mind that, and you might, like I said, remember moments where the mind, where we really notice it is actually when the mind regrounds itself, starts taking these other, these dimensions, makes them important again. You know, it's not important, it's not important. Like if you've been backpacking or on a retreat or gone for a while, disconnected, and it's like, it does, you know, this whole drama about Obamacare or, you know, just name any one of the things. It's just not there. And then it's like, did you, have you noticed when you come back, you have to get back up to speed. You know, the, the tension, the, the, uh, identification with certain views. You have to like, get it going again. Oh yeah, that's how I feel. This is what I think. You know, you have to reconstruct, refabricate the sense of the self who believes this, who doesn't believe that, thinks people who think that are this way. This isn't a reality, it's like it was said earlier, it's a fabrication. So you might want to experiment by looking at that autopsy, and there are many videos, they're all on YouTube, so once you see the one that I linked on our website, you can, after you watch that, you'll see all the other videos in sequence, and He'll just continue to open the body up and to smaller smaller pieces, different systems of the body. Um, so you can do that. Or you can just work like we did tonight with the body. So there are many ways to begin to play with this view. Basically, through any of the six sense gates. So you can really work with this. We've been working with hearing and physical touch or sensation and thinking. So three, this is the instructions that we got from Joseph Goldstein that hopefully you've all taken a look at now. But feel free to add the others as well. These are the only way ways that experience is being known, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and thinking, mental activity. These are the only six ways. And we can take on the discipline, seeing is being known, sensations are being known or being felt. And just keep reducing it this way. So any fabrication is just a thought being known. And if there's some sensations associated with the fabrication, the thought, then sensations are being known. And we just keep working that. Just keep working that. And notice the view that arises, or the absence of view, the lack of view, which is its, in a sense of view, that arises out of that disciplined way of being, way of seeing. And then notice the coming back into the more ordinary view, the reconstructing of a sense of a self, and the weight or the tension that goes with it, the agitation that goes with it.
I'll just read one more thing from Joseph Goldstein's article where he's talking about thought. Thoughts are tremendously seductive. When they go unnoticed, they have compelling power. They become the dictators of the mind. Yet when they're noticed, we realize the only power thoughts have is the power we give them. We see that thoughts themselves are the thinker, that there's no self behind them to whom they're happening. This is a nice, I thought that was a nice phrase, thoughts we realize or we see that thoughts themselves are the thinker, that there's no self behind them to whom they're happening. In the light of awareness, thoughts often dissolve in the very moment of noticing. We see they're essentially, we see that they're essentially empty, transparent, insubstantial. Notice the difference in your own experience between being lost in thoughts and being aware of them. So I thought for the small groups tonight, a couple things. I put uh, some of these reflections on the website, so you probably, some of you might have seen them. But, uh, and I maybe even mentioned them last week, I forget. But some, one thing you might talk about in your small groups is just that connection between a strong, clear sense of self and the experience of dukkha, mental tightness, mental contraction, mental weight. And the relative absence of that sense of self and uh, freedom or buoyancy or absence of weight. So this is a very simple thing. Like, like for example, in your small group, you might just reflect today, like, when did, when did I feel tight today? Oh, yeah, this happened to me today. And then in your group, you know, state like how there was this construction of self at that time when there was that tightness. In other words, can you remember times of being really tight when there wasn't also a strong sense of self? Can you remember times of being relatively free, heart unburdened, when there was a strong sense of self also there? So that's one thing you might share. Isn't that a contradiction there? Which one? The second one. There's a sense of self there. Doesn't that sort of imply it's going to be tightness? Right, but it's the missing of that that fuels it. You know, it's because we don't see that. So to start talking about this, what that does is it makes an imprint in the mind. It's going to notice that correlation more and more. Like that one teacher said, this sort of funny phrase, no self, no problem. When there's no strong sense of self, constructed self, there's no problem in that moment. When there is, there's a problem in that moment. Let me just mention one more thing, Helen. And then the other thing is, instead of turning the sense of self itself into a problem... It's really the grasping is the problem. So you might see that 
you know, because it's such a strong tendency in our minds, you might see the, the experience of getting defensive, you know, that real personal feeling of being defensive, being angry, or really wanting something. But then, in that moment, instead of personally thinking that, that I shouldn't be doing that, you know, that's not what the Buddha is teaching, practice not attachment to the sense of self. Don't try to get rid of the sense of self. Be mindful of the sense of self. We're cultivating a mindfulness or an understanding of the sense of self. We want to understand it. There, it would only be a self who needs to destroy the sense of self, which would be a, a, a nihilistic approach. You know, I'm, I am a self, but it's, it's not working for me. So I'm going to stop that. That's not right, that formulation. So the practice, and you could talk about this, is how, you know, the neurotic tendency to want to destroy our selfing or judge ourselves because we're taking something really personally and really desiring not to take something personally. I mean, I know this experience, I'm sure a lot of you do, where we've been really caught in something, we're really caught, we know we're caught and we don't want to be caught. And the thing is, that itself is just another trap, of course. Not wanting to be caught is now we're caught in the not wanting to be caught. So that's something you can share in the small groups, too. Do you have a thought before we break up into small groups? Well, it's funny about happiness, because I think I've heard from you and Brent that happiness doesn't usually have a strong sense of self. But I had an experience, you know, where I'm riding my horse, and for hours afterwards, oh, that was so much fun. When can I do it again? And there was a, a lot of thinking going on yeah, to well, have that happiness. Thinking's not a problem. And... Having pleasant thoughts isn't a problem. It's the mind that constructs a somebody, right? So that being a human being means there's going to be pleasant feelings, and the pleasant feelings arise in conjunction with certain thoughts, certain sights, certain sounds, will be the trigger for a pleasant feeling to arise. And then the question is, well, what does the mind do when that pleasant feeling arises? Does Is there this activity of a sense of self being constructed and then that sense of self that's being fabricated moment by moment feels compelled to grasp the image of riding horse again? It does to recreate this happiness again and it keeps doing it. Yeah, so what we're interested in is not that there are pleasant thoughts that arise from time to time but how the mind spoils it through the grasping. That's the interesting piece. What does the mind do when pleasant thoughts arise? I didn't feel like it was grasping in that case. It just kept proliferating and just kept going. I kind of enjoyed it doing the proliferation. Yeah, but sometimes sometimes the on the surface there's some juice to the thoughts, but underneath there's some tension. And it's just the, there may not be enough sensitivity to really notice what's there. So we want to keep an open mind, you know, whether there was grasping or not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.